Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and as always, thank you for joining me on this sports podcast, whether it's the first time you're listening or you're a regular listener of the show. Lots of breakdown in the world of sports, a couple big guests to do that. First time joining the show for producer, editor, and co-host at the Extra Points Network, it's Eddie Murphy, a friend of mine, a former NFL Network alum. Uh, we break down a lot. He's a diehard Rangers fan, so we break down their moves, what the playoff pictures look like, how wide open it is, and a jam-packed trade deadline with some NFL thoughts at the end. And then it's Kent Brown, everyone's favorite. I, I say that jokingly, but Kent Brown joins the show to talk March Madness, St. Peter's, and the Sweet 16, a 15 seed, and a lot of other teams making a run. Coach K still going, surviving with Duke. Arizona survives a tight one. Gonzaga's still in it. Lots to break down in the world of March Madness. Eddie Murphy up first, followed by Kent Brown on the Money Mitch Effect. Let's start the show. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, uh, first time having him on the show. Really excited to do this, also to talk hockey. Uh, Eddie Murphy coming to us from the Extra Points Network, where he's a producer, editor, and co-host there, working with Cousin Sal, Dave Damaschek. Before that, Predator producer of podcast at the NFL Network, a BU Terrier from Staten Island. Eddie, thanks for joining the show, my man. Mitch, uh, what an intro. That's the best intro I've ever had ever. You had the whole, I mean, we're friends, so you yeah. know my bio, but you have the, the bio on lockdown. Yeah, I didn't have to practice that much uh, yeah. either. You know, I think the, the end too, and, and that's where I do want to start because I knew about the BU Terriers tie when, when we first met, you know, you're, you're big into your school, uh, but far from anything. I mean, for the, for someone that went to school in Boston, the, the feeling of all Boston sports teams couldn't be more polar opposite. So you were, you know, the road fan for a while there, but what was the Staten Island experience like? And then I asked that because I don't know many people from there and I don't even know where the allegiances lie. Like your teams are kind of the establishment a little bit of the New York, you know, the brand. So what was that like growing up there and what, you know, was it family or more that got you into your Rangers, Yankees and Giants? Yeah. So with the New York, with the Staten Island thing, I mean, everywhere you go, I would say is pretty close to an even split, maybe. Long Island may have more of the Islanders fans. Obviously, the team is named after the, you know, the physical land that people are living on. But uh, like most of my friends, like Yankees Mets, if you, you could really flip a coin, Jets Giants, you could flip a coin. I think the Knicks, the majority of the time, always were the best team, the, the most rooted for team in the town. I guess the Nets thing recently have like a little bit of a spike, but it's still not they don't really register as much yeah. they think they do. They don't register. The Knicks and Nick could be as bad as Knicks are always miserable and the hardest ticket in town, or the most expensive ticket in town mm. rather, is going to a Knicks game with the uh, Madison Square Garden. And then um for hockey, uh like the Devils had their push. Obviously you remember all the, their cup runs and the the boring days back with Rodor <laughs> and trap. stuff. But but like the Rangers, the run in, in fourteen, even before then, they had a couple uh they had the, the ECF appearance, like there is something that's great about, uh, especially where I live in Staten Island, where everyone who's a Rangers fan, they're all diehards. And you you know hockey fans, Mitch. Like, the diehards, the, the niche fans, like, they're a different breed. Mm-hmm. And, like, the just the support, the hardcore support. And, like, just everyone had a, a – like, there's flags and pennants and all, like, decorations for the Rangers for that for that run. And every bar in town was putting them on. So that was definitely a, a cool experience. But uh, my long-winded answer was just, like, yeah, I, you know, my family was – 
Giants fan, uh, like LT. There's images yeah. of LT all over my house and the Yankees and Mickey Mantle. My dad uh, loved those guys. And then, uh, like, just the Knicks and, and, and Rangers were – like, my dad was at the Cup in 94 when they won. Um, he was there. So, like, the, they all hold this special place uh, in my house. So, it was uh, – I didn't really want to waver off that. That being said, though, no ill will towards the Mets. Like, they're not in the Yankees, you know, division. So, no ill will there. I'll root for the Mets to, to, to succeed. Uh, same goes for – um, the Jets, like I used to have Jets season tickets for a while back in the day before they, you know, made MetLife, and uh, I, you know, was playing uh, high school football on, on, you know, weekends and went away to college. So it was one of those things where, like, I'm also fine with the Jets succeeding and doing well uh, too. So I have no ill will. Can't say the same about the Devils and Islanders <laughs> or the Nets, but uh, but those teams are fine. Well, that's a reasonable and logical response, right? No ill will as long as they're not, you know, conference rivals and. Even out here, I just don't understand why, like, you know, Dodger and Angel fans, or Dodger fans, I should say, dislike the Angels so much. It's like you're not even in the same league. It's, you don't even cross paths. But that being said, I wanted to switch to, and this is just recently I've noticed it, but I can see that the Rangers kind of hit you a little differently. You know, even when the Yankees were making runs, I know you're a diehard and you talk about the Giants. They're on hard times recently. But the Rangers are starting to get better. They started to have that buzz. And I could see that of all the sports teams, it seems like they hit you differently. So I just want to know, you know, why that is. When did you just, I guess, not just the sport itself, but the team in particular, when did you start to fall in love with that Rangers team? And has it been unwavering your entire adult life? The uh, Great question. I would say for me, the, the pro sports teams um, would be the, the Giants and the Rangers, definitely top two. Basketball, far and away, distant fourth mm-hmm. with the Knicks. And uh, and then like with the the Yankees, the Yankees are a strange one too because like with the Yankees in the postseason, especially recent years, like I, I'm I'm living and dying by them. I want them to succeed. I want them to win, and I'm I'm going crazy. But uh, you know, there's that stretch in MLB season where it's so long. After you watch like the first couple of series, and the season kicks off for like this is great. Baseball is back. Like nothing better than watching you know day baseball in the sun. It's it's the best thing. And then it you know it drags on. You're like, mm-hmm. all right, could we just kind of hit the fast forward button here and get there? But with the you know the Giants, their their two Super Bowl victories in my lifetime were awesome. Uh, so like that that especially beating Tom Brady, that just <laughs> felt so special. Yeah. But uh, with the Rangers, I, I would say around like middle school, like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I was always a Rangers fan. I you know, went to games growing up and would watch them around that time when I became, I guess, more of a cognizant human being of what was going on in the in the National Hockey League. And I just fell in love with the, 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 this like gritty team. I think back then they were coached by Tom Rennie was still the yeah. coach and uh they they just they had like the a lot of guys that were you know ranger staple players forever like they had you know mark Stahl and brandon dubinsky and ryan callahan just guys that the city loved like the new york city loved those guys and uh dan girardi and obviously king henrik so like there were a lot of a lot of things to love in that team back in the day and um i just it became a thing where like i had to watch the rangers every single night and then experiencing those cup runs uh, the one ECF, the cup run, obviously the loss versus the Kings. It's so weird how painful playoff hockey is, but how rewarding it is when you do win. And like the, the that rush, like it has to be better than drugs. Like I'm convinced, <laughs> like uh, especially overtime games and you're and like you just yeah. can't even focus on anything else. Your stomach's in knots, your heart feels like it's in your mouth. Um, so like nothing can replicate that. So that uh, to me, I guess, is why the Rangers became this thing. Uh, so and then like just the fact that like my dad was at the 94 yeah. Cup game, and we have a picture in my house of him uh, up there celebrating, and that's like the, the 94 season is just, I would say, one of the most talked about seasons in New York sports amongst 
uh, New Yorkers. Maybe up there with like the Subway Series in 2000, obviously quite special, the Giants Super Bowl victories. But that 94 year is like if you just bring up, oh, yeah, 94, everyone's like, oh, yeah, the Rangers. Like, you know, that's that's a special year. Yeah, and it's interesting, too. Uh, I was, you know, never grew up a Ranger fan or a fan of a specific team, really, until, like, the Blue Jackets came around. But uh, I wanted to be like Brian Leach as a little kid. I'm a little older than you, so that's why these references are going to be a couple back there. And I thought Theo Fleury as a Ranger was one of the coolest players I had seen. Yeah. So in that regard, did you have a favorite player? I mean, Hank is a goalie, and I know he meant so much to the city. But do you have a, a particular player that that's your guy, your all-time favorite? <laughs> Uh, this is a funny one. I have a Jed Ortmeyer jersey, number wow. 41 from the wow. Rangers. I believe he went to Michigan. He played college hockey in Michigan. Yeah. And I had his jersey because he was a guy that was just like the bottom six would just block shots like had, you know, his hands are probably as skilled as uh, mine or yours. Like the guy just not not great at hockey, but, you know, American born player. So it was just this awesome thing that he'd come in there block shots, like finishes checks. He would just do the little things. And I loved him growing up. Um, I Mark Stahl for a while. I really did like, he was a guy that never was going to blow up the stat sheet. And he, and he, you never really heard his name during the broadcast because he would just shut down these guys. And, and like, remind, like, obviously he's playing against, uh, you know, in their prime, Sidney Crosby in their prime, Gino Malkin in their primes out uh, Ovechkin, all these uh, awesome uh, players in the, in the Rangers division. So he was, doing his job versus them. So he was like a, he's a really underrated player of the, the mm-hmm. last, you know, 15 years or so, I'd say. So I loved him. And uh, I mean, Henrik, it's like a cop out answer to say Henrik. I mean, he's a guy that's, it's, he's up there with the the greats, mm-hmm. uh, not just for the Rangers, but for New York sports. So of course, uh, King Henrik is, is there. And another wild card one who I love, and I've met him a few times, my family's met him a few times, actually a really good guy off the ice is uh sean avery he he gave <laughs> yeah. me quite quite a lot of laughs uh I, I lo- he's a guy that obviously you root for if he's on your team but if he's if he's playing your team you're gonna hate him first time i've ever seen and i haven't seen it since either uh, a rule change in the middle of a playoff series because of one player and that was yep. sean avery uh, no, those are some good answers, man. I thought, you know, I thought I might hear a little, uh, I thought I might hear a little Ryan Callahan or maybe even, you know, the current guy in charge, Chris Drury, but you know, those well, are all good Drury too, with the BU connection. Yeah. Like I have a, a jury. I mean, that was great. I wish we got him a little bit earlier in his, uh, mm-hmm. in his career, but like, yeah, Chris Drury, I mean, uh, playing at BU, he's a legend in, in, in BU. And if we want to talk about the college hockey there, we can, but yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a big deal there. And, and him coming over the Rangers and now doing a great job at GM. It's, uh, it, it's awesome to see him be such a big part of the organization. And Callahan, like I mentioned Dubinsky before, too. Those are two guys also, like, grinded out, like, skill level, not so high, but somehow are always chipping in with goals and assists. And they were uh, – they just played the game the right way. And during, like, towards uh, the years when Torrell was head coach. And uh, I always remember like those, like, uh, Sidney Crosby, Brandon Dubinsky, like, arguing, shoving matches <laughs> yeah. on the ice always. They, they hated each other. And, like, they kind of – I hate using these like weird cliches, but like the identity of the city, like kind of like the rough and tough, like New York City, like those Callahan, Dubinsky, Girardi, all their like gritty play. Definitely at that time, like they identified with like how New Yorkers kind of thought or felt. So it that, that was uh, they definitely they were awesome guys to root for during that stretch. Well, I know we the college hockey thing we'll have to say for another time. I just wanted to point out that you will also make amends, right, with your rivals. Like Chris Kreider is your guy now, even though he was at the other Boston school. Well, I I could tell oh, man, I could tell you so many crazy <laughs> stories about watching. Like I was just texting my friends this. It's insane to think 
okay, I show up at BU in 2010. I know Chris Kreider is going to be there playing uh, on the Boston College Eagles versus my Terriers. And he's there. I'm like, oh, man, I, I, this guy is awesome. The Rangers draft him. And I'm like, well, now I have to root for him. And it, it, it was like a weird thing where I remember a one game, they were kicking the crap out of us. Uh, this is the year that they won the championship. And we were always good. They were just a little bit better uh, in those years. And obviously until uh, Jack Eichel came the year after I graduated and they uh, BU lost uh, in the championship. But I remember he, he was shorthanded and like he came out of the, the uh, Terry was a shorthanded, Kreider came out of the box. So it's now, uh, and he just got the puck in like center ice. Yeah. And he just split the two defenders like by himself and just skate like right between them and like just put a move on our goalie and scored. And I was like, part of me was like, ah, oh, man, that stinks. And another half of me was like fist pumping like Tiger Woods because I'm like, he's going to be doing it. And then to see him kind of grow in this player, just, he's had what, 41 goals now? Like, yeah, it's he, stupid. Realistically, he scored 50 goals uh, for a guy that was like struggling to get ice time with uh, John Tortorella. Is now, it just, it's a really good feeling to see uh, a player you drafted, a homegrown player, succeed. Especially him from uh, from like Boxford, Mass, wherever he is. Another American-born player who's just uh, playing really well. It's it's pretty awesome to root for Kreider. Hey, I've made peace with Zach Rowenski being a Michigan guy, so anybody can do it uh, if he helps your pro team out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, all right, Eddie Murphy here on uh, the Money Mitch Effect. I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, standings before we talk about the trade deadline and, and what an interesting trade deadline it was, but. As we kind of alluded to in our many talks off the air, kind of a little unprecedented that in the East, which we agree is looks like it's pretty wide open, but we've kind yeah. of known who these eight playoff teams were going to be for a while. So I looked at that, and I think maybe that might be why, Eddie, there was so much activity at the trade deadline because you have eight teams that are all going to be there and no real alpha in that true sense. Well, there's so many trades at the deadline, and then there were a lot of trades even before, obviously, with like mm -hmm. the Bruins getting Lin Hall, like uh, Lin Hall, yeah. the Rangers got it for Toronto, like a bunch of trades, and a lot of guys you thought were going to be traded, and they were uh, signed or extended, like Pavelski um, it comes to mind as one, one of those guys, but it, it's... It is so wide open, and it's so like the West is relatively easy. I don't know how you feel about the Avalanche. I know like the Atlantis Cog may come back before the end of the regular season, but him getting surgery, you never want your captain, leading goal scorer, to have that. No, um, I don't think we can kind of go into this a little further with the Oilers, but I think they were the, the trade deadline losers mm. uh, for a number of reasons. Yeah, but like you have them, they're I guess kind of in the mix. The, obviously, uh, I mentioned Eichel before him and the Golden Knights. But uh, Calgary Flames too, depending on your thoughts on them. But I, yeah. I think with like you know the West versus the East, you can you can name any East team right now. You could go down a list and like oh they're going to win it. I'd be like yeah, yeah they could yeah they probably could. Like whereas the West you have really only three four maybe at most, and the East you have a ton of teams and and every single team was just like we have to do what we can to get these players here. And I don't think really anyone overpaid severely i think it was kind of a conservative yeah. deadline in that regard they didn't give up a ton um i know like my rangers did not for and i think even the, the penguins made a, a pretty fair deal too to bring in raquel uh, yeah. like so there was no one really overpaying you didn't see the huge names of me moved um some guys like chikrin you know with, i thought he was a, a lock to get moved and him and kessel they were not moved that was a little mm -hmm. bit of a shock so it showed you the teams want to get bet they wanted to get better but they didn't really want to overpay 
I mean, I, who? I mean, maybe yeah. for like Florida for Drew is like probably the most they over. Like, I don't even know who really That's, paid yeah. the most in the de- like close I mean, to the deadline. So it was it was pretty even across the board. Yeah, Claude Giroux, That was basically a first round pick, either twenty four or twenty five. That's not really like I would say crazy overpaying for a no. guy. What they mean and yeah, I mean Florida is. I just want to say for the Eastern Conference, they've been the best team uh, for most of it. They've pretty much got that division. I would kind of be shocked if they blew a six point lead at this point, but. We have seen that before. They average over four goals a game. So that's what, I mean, you know their identity. It's pretty straightforward. They reinforce that. I think the only team that I would push back on being, you know, on the more aggressive side was a team like Toronto. And I Mm -hmm. think that might be to avoid Florida in the first round because right now they're deadlocked with Boston. I just don't think they want to see Florida given how bad their goaltending issues have been, which was one of the areas they didn't address. And in the Western Conference, I, I would I would agree with the with the notion that there's less teams that could win the cup. I think there's going to be some teams lower seated that can make runs, but yeah, you're not getting the sense of Colorado as that one, even Calgary in their division, pretty much locked up. Eddie, I just don't think that they're going to be tested right out of the gate like you are in the East, where the first series, here we go, anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to even scroll through to give like a hot take about what I think from either division and who could make them, but like I. I don't even. Yeah, I would say, I, well, I'm just curious to see how the uh, central turns around because I thought Minnesota was the most aggressive. It's hard to use the phrase winner, uh, you know, on any of these teams because we got to see how these moves pan out. They did. They decided what they were going to do was going to beef up, get goaltending, get some physical players. Mm-hmm. And that second spot in that division, I mean, Minnesota, Nashville, St. Louis are separated by a point. Nashville's got a few games, uh, you know, a few extra games played, but no one's really separated from the pack, and it wouldn't shock me if any of these three teams take your pick kind of does get a little hot and could go on a tear here. But, I mean, I I just – and part of me is saying that because the Kings are the biggest overachievers in the league this year, props to them, but I don't think we're picking them to make a deep playoff run. And Edmonton and Vegas, with all the star power they have, Vegas getting Eichel, Edmonton having the two best scorers arguably in the league, and – you know they're they're stuck in neutral also so there's less there's more pessimism with those teams with all that offensive talent is what i'm trying to say yeah and and with edmonton like i said before they have to be the biggest loser and this is no knock on bringing you know kulak and Derek broussard from a ranger but it's like that's that's not enough that's like what like mm-hmm. what's going to happen here edmonton brings in these two guys they're gonna i'm not even sure if they'll even win a series maybe they win a series but they're not going to make a deep deep run and then it's another year wasted of the mcdavid dry you know duo and I just I knew that McDavid was never going to get moved at the deadline. I think he's too big of a player to get traded midseason. It's like they're going to have to figure out something. And I floated this with with Damashek on our shows. And the, the easy response is like you never are going to get back the return you want for trading away a top mm-hmm. player, not even like a top player, like the best player and not just the best player in hockey. You could argue McDavid is the best player right now in any in any sport i have yeah and i think there's a i think there's a gap i I really would argue Mm -hmm. that i think he's a gap and we're not even talking about dry who is also a top uh top two to five player in the the nhl so like yeah i'd agree they wouldn't get a great return but how many more years of this do you need like clearly the organization is not good at building around these guys and they've they've shown that and they haven't brought in the proper anything really to, to to help them out and in the past, they've been miserable at drafting. You finally hit on these these two guys. I mean, it was kind of impossible to miss hitting on McDavid. But mm-hmm. 
I, I mean, I I don't know what the return would even be for both of them. I don't, and I don't even think trading one would help. I mean, maybe you could try that, try it away. Dry style, keep McDavid your captain, yeah. get in three ready players like right, you know, in the lineup right now. I don't know if that's the best thing, but part of me is just like they're not going to win these guys, and it's you're going to turn into a messy kind of Eichel situation where they may want out. And they're going to. It's just this like to me. If they were smart, if I was the head of the Oilers, I'm like, I'm doing whatever I can to bring in the top players and really give them yeah. uh, uh, other players to, to win alongside because the, this is not going to continue, I don't think, past this offseason is my prediction. I think it's just been disappointing, and everyone talks about the goaltending, but they've never gotten that backbone defenseman. I mean, and I like Nurse, and I, and I think he's good, but you know, look at all the teams that have won and even made runs. You need that guy. You know, and that might be, you can argue that's harder to do than in other positions, but they've, they've never really shored up their blue line. I think that's been a big part of this too, but Hey, playoff hockey is different than the other ones. So if something can turn, we'll see Calgary's kind of in uncharted water. Uh, I do want to mention some of these moves here. Uh, We'll start with, we'll start with your Rangers since they started everything off, I guess on March 16th with the Vitrano deal, Uh, Justin Braun, Tyler Mott. I don't know if you think this is enough, if they should have done more. Is Capo Kakinen going to come back? Uh, the Rangers team that, you know, with Shesterkin and how well he's playing and defensively, and you think you can get a lot out of him in the playoffs. But would you, Eddie, have liked to see the Rangers do a little more? I, I'm actually thrilled with the offseason, all things considered. I mean, offseason, well, trading deadline, all things considered, because they didn't give up that high-end level prospect. They didn't give up a first-round pick. And they did something that I, they needed to do, which was add depth in the in the middle lines and to get like a you know a sixth or seventh D man in Braun. But bringing in Vetrano and Mott and Cop, um, I think is great because I don't know if there was a guy on the market. You know, Drew said flat out no. Obviously, the Rangers were interested in getting Claude Drew. He didn't want to come there. Didn't want to go to Boston either. Whatever. Enjoy your time in Florida. <laughs> but. Outside of him, like Kessel, I think they probably looked into. He didn't get moved. They looked into Raquel. And it just seemed like Drury was adamant about not trading away high-end picks or their high-end prospects like uh, Niles Lundqvist. Um, even you know Schneider, they didn't want to move the blue line. Zach Jones, they didn't want to move him off the, the blue line either. Um, and then Kraftsov is the weird one because he's over in the KHL. I guess teams just don't think he's going to come back over. Yeah. So they did the best thing that was available, which was get some guy like Drew waited the whole day, waited it out. These teams were getting nervous. Other players were traded, just drove the price down while Drew was in on other players driving the price up, which is masterful. And he gets these guys, the 11th hour and, you know, Mott and Cobb and obviously Vitrano was a little before that and Braun was earlier in the day. But getting them for really pennies on the dollar and uh, and that's exactly what they need, especially with the injured uh, Cabo Caco. I mean, it, it seems like Cago's going to be back relatively soon. They say he's going to start skating. They said early April. Um, that's fine. I know he hasn't lit up the the stat sheet, but he's a guy. If you watch his game, it's not not even an excuse. But if you watch his game, his puck possession is phenomenal. He's a big, strong body, and he could you know he could kind of dictate play if he wanted to. And they just need him in that you know that second line or the you know the third yeah. line, depending on where they're going to mix and match these guys. But they needed depth. They needed some additional scoring that's not from somebody named Chris Kreider or Mika Zibanejad or Artemi Panarin. So I'm pretty happy that they, they got those guys there. And, you know, playoff hockey, like you're saying, it's a it's a way different game. It's not as fast-paced. It's not as open. It's not, a, you know, not a lot of high scores. It's going to be a really tough, close game. And it's going to be those little weird extra bounces and your ability to roll 
for fresh lines and hopefully a, a bounce goes in. I think what they just did in this in this deadline by getting those guys, getting those pieces really does help them to make the push um, so that you don't have to rely on winning games by Igor mm-hmm. stopping 35 shots every night. Yeah, it's also, in, in addition to what you just said, it's also maintaining and, and weathering that storm when you're only down a goal, keeping it to that and just giving yourself a chance. So I, I agree. I think it was good. I, uh, I forgot to mention Cop, and I thought Truba's throwback of them playing their young hockey on CompuWare was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and just my personal aside, you know, all these guys are younger than me, but it's just fitting. I didn't even realize that that's where they played. I remember going up there to play them when I was in, like, high school, and everyone on that team was big and, and mean-looking, so... It's perfect that those two Rangers ended up, you know, playing where they did. Uh, no, I, I think the Rangers did a good job with uh, all things considered of this pretty active trade deadline where pieces were added across the board, especially in the East. Uh, Brandon Hagel from Chicago to Tampa is one I wanted to talk about, Eddie, because this just seems like a classic Tampa Bay move because they're going to have Hagel play on like the third line, and this is clearly a top two line talent. This reminds me so much of the Blake Coleman deal in the past. Yeah. And, you know, they also had Riley Nash. They're, they're, they're gearing up, and, and it's hard to believe that they're kind of going under the radar as a back-to-back champ going for a three-peat. But I think Tampa is clearly gearing up, and it's what you have to do when the window is, you know, Kucherov and Stamkos and Hedman, you know, and Vasilevsky, who we know is the most clutch goalie in the game, bar none. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're rearing up, and, and Tampa's kind of signaling that they're still in it to win it. Yeah, I I made the dumb prediction in the offseason on our uh, NHL preview that uh, I said that there's no way the Tampa is getting back to the ECF. They're not going to repeat. They're not going to make the ECF. Uh, I said I think Toronto was my pick um, many months ago. And I obviously agree that that like Vasilevsky, Andre Vasilevsky, bar none, best goaltender in hockey. You need to win a, a elimination game. He'll win it for you. But I just thought like they lost uh, some of those pieces in their bottom lines. I, again, people want to point to like they're, they're high end players, and I've, I made this point um, about the Edmonton Oilers and why I think it would be okay to trade away guys like McDavid. I mean, look, Wayne Gretzky was traded multiple times. You could yeah. trade Connor McDavid, mm-hmm. but. Their Tembe was not winning because of, you know, they had Steven Samkos and Kucherov. Like, yes, those are a major part of it. The, the other thing is they, number one, could roll four lines, just guys who can contribute no matter if they're on the, the top pairing or they're on the bottom, bottom you know, the fourth line. They have Victor Hedman, but they had a great group of D-men, and they had a top goaltender. So it's like, yes, having high-end scoring guys like forwards, are it's great, but that's not going to win you games in, in the playoffs. And they had their, their team, their chemistry, everything was just perfect. Um, so, yeah, these are really these are really good moves. Obviously, they lost like Barkley Goodrow to, to the Rangers, so getting guys like Hagel to replace them is just it, – it's, it's a great move, and that's why Tampa's back-to-back champions. And now – after my prediction of them not making the ECF, I would not be shocked if they're right back in it because yeah. they, they just look they 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 are the model that a lot of teams in the NHL should be following after. Yeah, they're winning cups because they can roll out Braden Point on like line two and guys exactly. like that. That's just I mean insane. And uh, you know that was Steve Eiserman who's trying to build it back up in uh, in Detroit, but we'll see. Um, I did want to mention also that uh, I don't know that you've ever seen this before either. But the trade that, that wasn't or was delayed, the Dadanoff trade from Vegas to the Ducks, have you followed up on that, that it's it currently like under review? over an hour, 40 minutes or something like that they took to finalize? Yeah, and it was wild because it had to do with the no, trades, no trade con, uh, clause that he signed in his Ottawa contract. But I bring this up because, you know, for Vegas, it's a move they needed to do to, to activate guys from longtime IR. And Vegas yeah. is just trying to, I guess, hold on. Their, their big acquisition, we could say, was way back when Jack Eichel, who... 
you know, looks to be healthy. I know he's a BU guy, but like you are, but it's just a matter of him getting reps and getting ice time. And I think Vegas, they haven't won the cup. They're just starting out fresh. But I think we're starting to see, Eddie, the culmination of just all those long playoff runs and all that physical hockey they played that for whatever reason, and not like Edmonton where, you know, that's just there's some structural problems. This just hasn't been Vegas this year. Yeah, I was high on Vegas, uh, and I even even before the the Eichel trade, because I just thought they were they had a, a deep team. Uh, they were pretty solid on in every facet, whether it's you know scoring, they have a, a solid defense, solid goaltending, and I thought them getting Eichel would have put them over the top. I I think with him specifically, it's definitely just him. It's just time away from the ice. Him just not. It's, it's going to take a while for him to become. Uh, game ready, I guess. Uh, I know that's like an excuse, but I just feel like, especially dealing with a neck injury, I guess we'll never know how really severe it was because you could have uh, you have his side saying one thing and you have the Saber mm-hmm. side saying another. But you know, if it if it is all things are true, if it was a serious neck injury and he's not skating for a while and coming back, like yeah, it's going to take a lot of time. And chemistry is a big thing in hockey too, where he has to just fit in with his 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 guys to to make it all happen. I still think. If they got in the playoffs, Vegas has the this like weird magic about them. They could they could go on a run, and I think having a high end player like Eichel will help. He's only going to get better in time, but mm-hmm. uh, I do wish they also made some more moves at the deadline too. I mean, if you look at I know ESPN had a big winners and losers thing, and I believe they were one of the losers uh, the the nights because they they should have added more just because like we were saying before, with if the West only has a handful of teams that could legitimately win it. Uh, why not go for go for gold, especially when you have Edmonton just, you know, kind of taking mm-hmm. a backseat to everyone else because they don't want to make moves and we don't really buy into the Kings. So it's it's one of those things where I think as the season kind of moves on and gets into the playoffs, they're going to be kind of kicking themselves going like, yeah, we really could have pushed the chips uh, all in the table and yeah. they didn't do that. But uh, I, I still kind of have I kind of have faith in, in the in the Knights to make a little bit of noise. Yeah, right now they'd play Colorado first round, which would be insane. I don't think that's the series Colorado would prefer. Uh, but having said that, as crazy as no I told I, yeah, not to yeah. cut you off, but there's no yeah. way Colorado wants no. that series. And especially if, if Landis Cog is just getting mm-hmm. back from the the, the surgery uh, right around that time, uh, that's that's a real tough series. I know, I, of course, the Avalanche will be favored, but that's a, that's not a fun series for them. Right, and and this might be you know a, a counterculture argument, so to speak. But and I'm not trying to go all hot takey here, but it might be there might be teams that would rather go up against Colorado than Calgary in the playoffs, just because you know how brutal those Daryl Sutter playoff teams are. And Calgary, it's taken a few years, but they're fully acclimated into what he does. They're going to play big and physical. I think I think they've got like the most shutouts in the in hockey. I think they've got eleven shutout wins this year as a team. So that is uh, you know the, the big point I'm trying to make is Vegas is trying to get out of the wild card spot. You know, does Edmonton fall? Do the Kings take a slip back? You know, and then the, the domino effect, that's what makes playoff seating so special. But yeah, right I now, to, I have to say quickly, too, about with uh, Daryl Sutter's comments a couple of days ago. I'm not sure if he saw, <laughs> yeah. but he said that Which whoever's going to play, whoever's <laughs> going to play. Yeah, good point. Whoever's going to play the avalanche in the first round, it's going to be just a waste of eight days. Uh, I just love him saying that talking about another team. Yeah. But and what's so funny, too, is like you said, like Calgary is a brutal, brutal team to play in the playoffs. Like I, I. Like, I mean, yes, no one wants to play the Avalanche who are loaded and have so much high-end talent no matter where you look in their roster. But Calgary is a physical team. and They're built – that's a team that was, like, orchestrated to just play playoff mm-hmm. hockey. 
Um, so I just love Daryl Sutter saying that about uh, about the Avalanche that he's kind of talking about, like putting a little bit of like a jinx on them because maybe he feels deep down that his team is better or better suited to win a series. But those are your two heavyweights in, in, in the West. Like that's like we're saying it's it's wide open there. And I'm shocked that more of those teams didn't really make a push outside of really Minnesota by getting uh, their goaltender. A few more things here with Eddie Murphy on the Money Mitch effect as we go through the trade deadline. Uh, we talked about Coach Rue in Florida, a team that's averaging over four goals a game, which is just crazy. But, you know, I was a little surprised that their power play wasn't as good. It's like ninth in the league for a team scoring so much. So I think that's where that's going to, you know, fit in. And I think it is Florida realizing that they can't really rely on goaltending in the playoffs. So just double down. Yeah, they're they're a team that's going to be a high flying like they need to score, I would like four goals a night to to win. Uh, and, and I don't know if that's going to happen. The playoffs getting Drew for them like I, I would have loved Drew, uh, a guy that he could, he could you know play center. You could take face offs. That would have been awesome for the Rangers because they need those kind of things. So them getting him is uh, definitely helpful for them, but because they could they could score at will and they have some very talented players. Even some underrated guy like Duclair, like a lot of guys that are just like they don't get loved nationally. I mean yeah. that's because they're they're playing down in Sunrise, <laughs> Florida. Um, but like, if I had to rank the teams that scare me in the East or I, the team that I would, I, I don't think it's Florida at the top. I know they're leading right now, ninety yeah. points, but. Like, I think Carolina, Carolina scares the crap out of me. Uh, and obviously, we're just talking about the Lightning. They scare the crap out of me. I, I think if the Leafs, their goaltending issues, I know, like, Jack Campbell's been very up and down. I, I still think the Leafs are, are a good team. And Boston getting uh, Lindholm and start locking him up already. And, like, the goal that Marshawn had the other night. Like, they're a team that, again, really well. Like, it's just a great organization. And they've and they they've won a lot in the, in the, the, the past. So, I, I just... There are other teams that I think that Florida doesn't – they scare me more than Florida does. But I, I, I'm saying this as now I probably jinx them and <laughs> Drew will have a monster second half. But they don't really have the same uh, – I'm not terrified of uh, – right. I would pick the Rangers in a series over over the Panthers, I think, just mm. because mm. I, I believe in Igor and I believe he'll he'll steal the game. The Rangers still could score. And I just think that some deficiencies they have, Florida, on the defensive side will, will kind of catch them. And uh, they're still a relatively young team, new to this kind of, you know, the, these these are the, Tampa's been around, Boston's been around. Like, I mean, yeah. I just think Carolina's a tougher team, so it'll be interesting. Uh, they're a phenomenal team, but I I think they're others that scare you more. Well, that's like an if then question because if like on the surface, I don't know that I would go Rangers over Panthers, but if the Rangers get through, you know, that that would be the Eastern Conference Final, then it's like, wow, the Rangers put it together, and you know then I would be more convinced. Uh, I agree with you on Carolina. They added Max Domi from the Blue Jackets uh, yesterday. Yep. He hadn't had a great year, but he is kind of like an ideal player for this system where they're not going to ask him to do a whole lot, of, especially on the offensive side. Carolina is just deep. Their their depth is huge. Uh, you know, Washington was probably the only team in the East that didn't really go for anything. And, you know, we'll see if that was cap-related. You know, I think a Washington-Carolina series would be fun, but... I agree with you that Carolina's depth is pretty strong. Uh, I noticed one of the teams you said you didn't fear or didn't list there was the Penguins, which looks to be that first-round series. Uh, Raquel, I've always been a fan of his game. That was their piece at the trade deadline, another added depth player. But what is it about Pittsburgh that you think you know the Rangers can kind of match up well with? Well, number one, Tristan Jari like pretty much pooped the bed uh, last year and lost them series. And I know he's having a much better year this year. But uh, like I, I think in the match of the goaltenders, I'm going to side with with Igor there. 
And, you know, they, the Rangers only played the Penguins once so far. It was the national game. The Rangers lost one nothing. And if you watch that game, the first period, uh, and the Rangers did not score in that period, but it was so lopsided in shots, and the Penguins just didn't look like they, they could match it with the speed. They couldn't match with the physicality. And uh, in the second period, I mean, uh, obviously there was a lot of bad goaltending, uh, uh, bad refereeing in that game a lot. <laughs> I've never seen more four and four hockey in a, in a, like, a regular season <laughs> yeah. game in my entire life. Uh, I'm not sure if that's because it's Sidney Crosby playing. I'm not sure if that's because it's on national TV. But whatever it was, Malkin w- woke up, scored a goal. But that's the other thing, too, is like Malkin floats a lot. He he does not really play with a, a passion. I feel like he kind of like just is out on the ice, but not really doing what he's supposed to be doing. And Crosby is still going to be Crosby. And he's going to you know be in front of the net. He's going to you know create opportunities for him or his teammates. But I just feel like they're they were a team that's kind of hanging around that I thought would fade more this year. I thought the Caps would fade more too. Um, they're both kind of sticking around. I know they're you know the Rangers and the Penguins are neck and neck now with 85 points. But I I just feel like that I know that was a good move bringing in Raquel. Um, you know hasn't been as great as he's been in the past a few years back, but it's still a solid acquisition. But I, I don't know. I just I have yeah. this thing. I just feel this this very strong will with the Rangers over the Penguins. I just think that they're, they can match up with them. And I think now adding all this depth and getting guys like Kako back, uh, I just think that they're going to be a deeper team and a better defensive team, I think, than, than Pittsburgh will be. And uh, I, Igor is just otherworldly. And I think Jari, I wouldn't be shocked if Jari again goes back to his oh. own self. It's interesting, Jari, who has had a good regular season, don't want to take that away from him, but he's kind of slid into that flurry role of like, when is it going to happen? When's the downfall going to happen? I would be, I guess I, I would feel confident to a point, but it's also there is some nervous energy with the Penguins because they can float like Malkin, they can have some low lopsided losses, but they can put it together and they've shown what that means for a series. I guess we'll have to find out. Um, Eddie, last thing on, on this before we uh, wrap up, I just want to get your thoughts on that central division because that's kind of where the playoff teams are and we don't have a sort of who's going to be you know, coming out after the avalanche. Who do you think is the second best team right now? If you had to pick a team to kind of back is getting that two spot in the central. Well, I I think the wild picking up flurry is definitely the that, that's the move that needs to be done. They're, they're going to be a really solid team. The thing that I was... I, I was wondering if they had enough time to make up the the gap. Uh, obviously not with the Avalanche, but near the Wild. But the Dallas Stars, mm. like the, the Rangers had a game versus them uh, not too long ago, and I've been obviously watching them on uh, ESPN Plus. They're, they're a team that, like, when they're on, they're pretty good. And like I mentioned earlier, like they resigned, they extended Joel Pavelski, who was a guy that would have been on the block. Yeah. And they, they, you know, he's, you know, I think was leading them in points or something. But he's up there. I mean, he's at 38 years old. Like just they have a lot of. They're a good team, underrated team. So I would love to see them get up there because they're when they're wearing those like highlighter green jerseys. They're a fun team to watch. Yeah. But uh, I, I think the Wild getting flurry. They they were smart. They're one of the few teams in the West that was like we have. A deficiency and we're going to address it because if something happens to the avalanche and they slip up or whatever like the west is you know relatively open so i think that's a a, a good move i would rank it in terms of what i'm confident in of, of that number two spot probably the wild first you know they only played 61 games too and they're at 70 points so that's that's a little to their advantage i would say the blues next and then I would have uh, the Preds, mm. and then I think uh, the Stars, who I'm talking yeah. up, are a little too far behind right now. They're about, what, six, seven points behind those guys. So I think they're right there. But that, that, that that's a really fun group of uh, teams. Like, I, I have to say, like if, if you're browsing the ESPN Plus and you want to find something <laughs> to watch or TNT, like 
that that central division, obviously, you know, Sands, Blackhawks and, and Coyotes, uh, pretty good hockey in that division. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating because the Blues, you know, won the cup not too long ago. A lot of those players are there. It's what kind of what kind of goaltender are they going to get? Uh, mm-hmm. Uso's been kind of the guy over Bennington. Uh, and I don't know if you realize this, too, but the Predators have over 100 more penalties than the second place team in the NHL. They're That's just kind great. of they're just kind of the lowest, they're kind of the old school goon squad of the league. But I do I would say Minnesota if I had to push they were more aggressive. I think there's some talent there with Kaprizov and if Flurry and Talbot you know and and I think Flurry's good for this role. He could be the guy, but but there's not all the pressure in the world on him to be the savior. So I think that's going to be fascinating to see. Obviously, the name of the game is get at least the three spots so you're avoiding Colorado or Calgary. So. Um, it's it's going to be fun to watch for sure. But I, I would say, too, that it's hard to count out a team like Nashville because, and I know we've kind of, we're, we're a quick judging, uh, you know, analysts of who we think are the best players and whatnot. What Roman Yossi is doing needs more, more coverage because he's just sure. been incredible. He's the best player on that team. Hands down, he's gotten better every single year. Yeah, I, I mean, you're totally right about that. And they obviously, the, the not moving Philip Forsberg, that was a big talk of, a large chunk of the season he you know they wanted to move him he didn't want to go it would just you know it's but it, it looks like it was a smart move by keeping him because yeah they're gonna they're right there in the mix and uh with the blues i mean they we didn't mention this before but they picked up nick letty you know uh defenseman yeah. college hockey guy uh from detroit like, i think that's a really solid move too like you know i it's it's definitely gonna be a battle because i i, I wouldn't if i wouldn't be shocked if if any of them like went on a run and became the clerk number two team. I also wouldn't be shocked if they're all just equally as good. And it was like as close as it was now, right by the playoff time, because they're all right there um, with it. But like, yeah, you said, like I, I, I could say the wild today in second and I could see tomorrow me waking up going, yeah, you know what though? The blues kind of have the, they had, they, you know, they won not too long ago. They, they have a good, they're a well-coached team. They could figure it out. And then you're like, yeah, the predators, the predators might have the best, talented players i think out of the, those three so it can go either way but like i said before the central is just the it's a really fun division to watch probably outside of the metro mm-hmm. i'd say the central is the best uh, best hockey to watch a lot of fun uh a lot of fun uh crowds too for the playoff games the metro and central too if, if these teams get the home playoff games oh it's yeah be st louis goes crazy <laughs> minnesota obviously go crazy nashville i've heard is one of the best places to watch i mean there's a lot of good crowds there Eddie Murphy, this was a blast talking hockey with you. Uh, last thing, I mean, I don't know. I need to, I need to spin it a little different way. But you know, as a football fan, I got to just embrace the Deshaun Watson era. I think it's gonna be. That, yeah, it, uh, it's a, it's such a tough. Mm-hmm. Like I don't. Like I'm not gonna, all, I'm not gonna like give. Like I understand there's a serious nature of this. It's also like a, you know, a couple different points to talk about, but. It's not like I'm going to stop being a fan of a team I've rooted for my whole life. If you know what I mean? Like I'm going to I'm supposed to feel bad that you know they made a questionable decision on, on a player, which we still need to figure out more with that. But without a doubt, they upgraded the position. I mean, that's not even debatable. I yes. So I've thought a, a lot about this recently because I've seen I know some people that are you know they're kind of giving up their Browns fandom, and I mm-hmm. strangely have a lot of Cleveland Browns fans friends. You you rooting for a team like it doesn't matter it, what what is in the grand scheme of anything what does it matter if like you're like all right I'm my name is Mitch and I was a Cleveland Browns fan and I'm no longer rooting for them yeah it doesn't change anything it doesn't change the scenario it doesn't change what Deshaun Watson did or may have not done it doesn't change the fact that a, multiple NFL franchises were going after him it doesn't change the fact that the Browns 
ponied up and gave him a humongous contract, guaranteed contract, and traded everything they did to get him to, to play. So, like, it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't matter. This may sound cynical, but it, it just, that's the, that's the fact of the matter. So, like, the way I look at it is, I'm not saying, like, yeah, don't go out, maybe don't go buy his jersey, mm-hmm. don't hang his, po- you know, his poster on your wall, but you could be a fan of the football team and the football team is now successful with him playing quarterback and they go on to win the AFC North and they go on, you know, maybe win the AFC and they're mm-hmm. in Super Bowl. Like, I'm not going to blame you for rooting for your team, especially after how many, cr- yeah. I mean, you, I, I, it'd be hard, <laughs> hard to argue the Browns don't have probably the most <laughs> devast- like, you know, devastatingly crushed fan base out of any, any team in pro football. So like, I, it's just a weird thing to be like, well, now you have to give it up. It's like, I don't blame people who have been rooting for this team for yeah. decades who are now like, we got a very talented quarterback and we want to move on from. And it, it's like, you know, yes, of course there are a lot of variables. It's, yeah. it was, I think when you have 20 plus women coming out, I'm mm-hmm. going to probably say you did something. Yeah. Uh, and I think there could be a chance of more women coming out. And I think that, there, I, I know that the grand jury case didn't, you know, want to go after it, but there still could be civil suits and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that not that it gives the Browns a free pass, but like when so many teams are coveting him, That's and it's the like, big point, yeah. and it, it's like, so all right, well, the NFL, the NFL, in their NFL's eyes, they will probably suspend him, mm-hmm. and they'll like, well, then it's done. They're gonna, you know, shake their hands clean of of this and move on. It's like, so what do you like? I, it's like they allow him back he was an available quarterback. It's, I don't, I just don't fully grasp the people who are like, well, trying to block this out. Like the NFL is full of bad guys. The NFL is a lot of currently has a lot of bad guys in the past. A lot of people who have done no numerous things, murder, drugs, whatever it is, <laughs> yeah. assault. Like it just, it's a, it's not like our jobs. We, we mm-hmm. mean, you can't go to work doing what they, they could do. Like, yeah. Just the, the fact of the matter. And again, I'm not trying to come off as crass. Cause like, I don't stand with anything John Watson has done. But I understand from a football rooting perspective, it's still the team. You're still rooting for the logo, the lack thereof a logo, yeah. just a, a brown helmet or orange helmet. But like that's so I don't blame you for for being like, heck, yes, we finally have a guy who's going to be significantly better than Baker Mayfield or whoever. Yeah, I mean, you touched on all of it, especially that the market wasn't just one team and uh you know, being you guys were out of it. You yeah, were out that was of the it. other we, part. We of woke it up too. that day. It was like, oh, he's a Falcon. Kyle Pitts tweeted out like, yeah. oh, it's going to be interesting. You, you're like, well, here we go. Like, how are we going to solve? And this then, bam, it issue? just and happened. Then it's, and then it happened. Right. So you know, it's like, yeah, it, it, it's 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 gross. Like I just said, it's not a thing where you have to be like, I don't expect to see you in a Deshaun Watson jersey. I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying you're going to have to, you know, buy his autographed picture. But if your team wins, it's going to be hard not to. And especially you're in a division that has that had Ben Roethlisberger. And like, it, it's like the <laughs> yeah. Bengals. The Ray Bengals Lewis. Were, how bad were the Bengals uh, uh, for a, a number of years? They had a Pac-Man Jones. And, yeah, like you said, Ray Lewis. So it's like if anyone has struggled and dealt with it and seen other teams in their division win games with bad people, mm-hmm. it's it's you know it's fine. Like I, you know, as a just looking at it from a strictly football term, I think looking at a division that has Lamar Jackson and Joe Burrow and Deshaun Watson is great. Oh, by the way, the AFC West with Herbert and Mahomes, Carr. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, you can keep going down the list of how many great it's just it's going to be an awesome season, especially in the AFC in terms of quarterback. So it's like, yeah, I, I am not like, yeah, I'm not going to start crucifying people who are Browns fans. They're like, yeah, it's not a good scenario, but I'm, I hope my team wins. Like, I think that's pretty much the best answer you can give. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Uh, I do think the QB turnover game is fascinating uh, with, I think, Derek Carr's the second longest tenured starter in football now. It's like eight it's seasons. Wild. It is pretty nuts. 
uh, unfortunately, you know, you, your giants are in a little bit of a, uh, I don't want to say crisis, but they're still just searching for that identity. Um, Daniel Jones, I think this is it. I think we can all agree on that. This is the make or break year. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, he's back in, uh, he's with his, another head coach, another, uh, new offense and another off season, um, with a lot of his weapons, uh, quote unquote weapons. Cause none of them are really that good. Potentially on the move, I, I still think there's a chance that Saquon Barkley's moved. I still think there's a chance that maybe Sterling Shepard is a cap casualty. I know they restructured him, but who knows? Uh, hopefully Kadarius Tony gets in the field. I guess right now, if you're a Giants fan, your major focus clearly is the draft uh, with picks five and seven. And uh, Mel Kuyper today had them taking uh, Evan Neal from Alabama at five and Kayvon Thibodeau from yeah. Oregon we, at we, seven. We had to like hose you down after that. I think you were a little too excited if, when you read that. If that <laughs> happened, I would say the Giants are in a, uh, they're at least in the, those positions are, it's going to be great going forward because you have your Andrew Thomas, who is the, people don't realize this. The best player in the Giants last year was Andrew Thomas, a guy mm-hmm. that was made fun of two years ago in his rookie, uh, rookie year, the left tackle out of Georgia is, it was a beast and it was so it was night and day, like difference between how good he mm-hmm. was from the, the previous year to last year. So you have him, then you have Evan Neal, you have your two bookend tackles, you have your sack leader, uh, Aziz Ojolari from Georgia. Uh, so you have him at one edge rusher and you go and draft Kayvon Thibodeau at the other edge rusher. It's like, well, those are your, those are those two positions, edge and tackle are the two, probably the most sort uh, important positions in football behind the quarterback. So if you check all those boxes, and I guess, like you said, this is the make or break year for Daniel Jones. And I don't think I would not be shocked if Shane and Dable move on from the year after. But I think Daniel Jones, he showed you he could be serviceable if there's enough pieces around him. And that's the best way to start is by having him protected, uh, having a defense that keeps the, uh, you know, the state keeps them the offense from running back in the field constantly. So I, I think those are definitely some things to be happy about if you're a Giants fan. I've never seen a human being that just looks more like a football player than Kayvon Thibodeau. Like when you see, I, like, I love watching. Uh, no, it's this year. I had high hopes, and I picked them to win yeah. the Pac-12. Obviously, it didn't work out yeah. that way. They lost, but like he was when when he was on the field, he was a pleasure to watch. I mean, there was mm-hmm. like that one crazy highlight of him when he was like fully on his chest, and he somehow mm-hmm. like sprung mm-hmm. up in the air and still got the. Like, he's a freak of nature. He's awesome. Yeah. We'll have to monitor that. Uh, Good luck to your Giants going forward. Eddie Murphy, thanks for coming on Talking Hockey. Always a pleasure. Uh, I know we'll be knee-deep in these uh, playoff NHL Stanley Cup games, but uh, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with everything. You're the best, and uh, I am looking forward to watching some playoff hockey at Brennan's or wherever in Los Angeles you want to watch. Oh, we'll have to, for sure. Eddie, thanks again. Appreciate you, man. All right, huge thanks to Eddie Murphy. Check him out on the Extra Points Network. Does a lot of phenomenal work with Cousin Sal, Dave Damashek, many others there. Uh, we'll see. You know, all the Ranger fans in my life are really ramping up for the playoffs, and we're, they're just around the corner. Stanley Cup time is almost here. But thanks again to Eddie for popping on today's show. Now we're going to switch gears, go college basketball, March Madness, recap of the first weekend with Kent Brown. He's got a lot to say about a lot of different teams. Cinderella in the form of St. Peter's. Miami's still going. Iowa State, Michigan, a lot of double-digit seeds there, but we still have Gonzaga, Duke, Arizona. Here's Kent's thoughts on the first weekend and previewing some Sweet 16 matchups on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, we're diving into March Madness. A couple of great early rounds to recap with Kent Brown. 
joining us here. Kent, thanks for joining the show. Uh, first and foremost, though, that stethoscope better not be as freezing cold as it was yesterday. No, no, it's definitely calmed down a bunch since. You know, we're, we're in a good, a good weather period here in, in Southern California, so I'm ready to go. Four days of college basketball. It's funny because you don't think it's a lot at first, and every year we do it, but by some like Saturday night or Sunday night, you're like, okay, it's kind of it's kind of heading towards like a good time to take a few day break and head in the next week. So a couple of th- thoughts off the top. First of all, um, you know we had the first four. We had the OT, the uh, double OT game where your Irish beat Rutgers. Uh, Notre Dame won a game and then lost admirably to Texas Tech. I just bring that up not to just rub it in with you, but to say that you know it was kind of the one of the rare years where we don't have a first four team kind of playing into that second weekend, which I'm not, I'm, I'm saying we're spoiled by that fact. I mean, I think this is kind of more to be expected. Uh, that and the other observation I have is that it is kind of exciting when there isn't that true alpha team. When Gonzaga's good, Arizona's good, are they great? Well, I guess we'll find out, but it's kind of nice to know that even those teams can be scared early on. Absolutely, and the first four is interesting because I think a lot of people expected Michigan to be in the first four, and then as it turns out, they kind of are living like those type of teams where they're an 11 seed that probably under-succeeded by a ton in the regular season. And then, of course, they open up. They're down big against Colorado State in the first game on Thursday, turn it around, win that game. And then they beat a really good Tennessee team that won the SEC the week before. And then you had Indiana and Notre Dame, two teams that could have won are on paper you know, like Notre Dame beating Bama was not a big surprise. If IU would have beaten St. Mary's, it wouldn't have been a big surprise. But you're right. Like last year, UCLA made a Final Four run. We've seen teams in the past that made at least a Sweet 16, if not a Final Four. But for Notre Dame, two wins in three days, almost three wins in five days. It would have been really good. But they kind of maximized where their talent was this season. And I would have been very surprised if they beat Texas Tech. But on the other hand, Michigan now is kind of that yeah. team where, you know, they were an 11 seed. A lot of people expected them to barely get in, if not miss the tournament. And instead, they knocked off a contender in Tennessee. And now they have Jay Wright and Villanova. But you mentioned those kind of blue blood programs or top tier programs right now. Arizona, a viable one seed, had to go to overtime. Memphis took down Zaga all the way to the final moments. Mm-hmm. And then you even had, you throw in you know you start looking around and there's a ton of one seeds Baylor lost Kansas went pretty close down the wire against Creighton none of the one seeds on the weekend won easily and I think that's a good sign for what to expect these next two weeks yeah Michigan especially with the big man Dickinson down low I mean you know he he kind of took control in a lot of that game uh that was a very impressive win over the SEC champs uh Tennessee uh, and, and you brought it up as well. There's a lot to cover. I mean, Indiana, they were with St. Mary's until they weren't. And that was <laughs> that was quite a pull away uh, by St. Mary's in that one. Uh, my game of uh, the weekend was the last game, Arizona-TCU. Kent, we were texting about it. A very fascinating game. Some stuff happened. Some stuff allegedly didn't happen. Uh, Arizona saved their season with the big three-point play and then just owned the offensive glass, I thought, in, uh, in overtime and uh, survived in advance. So that was, to me, my most exciting game. I don't know if that's your answer. There was plenty to choose from. Yeah, that was right up there. And the fact that it ended the whole weekend was really cool. And and, and when you look at that, it was, you know, the star. You have Matherin taking over late in that game, making plays. Uh, and look, 
TCU, they they had chances. They played really well. Arizona, of course, made the three-pointer late to have a chance to win that game. And then TCU's last set was probably almost like inexcusable. Yeah. The fact that you're near midcourt uh, going sideways towards two defenders with about four seconds left, you're probably not going to get that call 47 feet away from the basket that often in that moment. I think for TCU, had it been in the paint and the same bump occurs, odds are the refs do have to call it. I'm not saying the refs need to choose when and when not to call fouls, but when you put yourself in a position where you're out of control, you're not turning towards the basket, and you're at the midcourt stripe nearly going over the line, it's easy for the ref at that point to yeah. not blow the whistle, to just sort of say, I'm letting this play out because this guy doesn't have any sort of advantage. And it wasn't, a, in my opinion, it wasn't such an egregious foul that it had to be called in that moment. But had it called, odds are that Arizona's eliminated. And then in the West region, it's TCU's to lose. Or sorry, in the South region. But overall, I think that it was a hell of a game. And I would put that up there. But to me, the game of the weekend has to be St. Peter's against Kentucky. Okay. Just yeah. because of what it meant. Uh-huh. That game went to overtime. The entire game, it felt like, why is St. Peter still in the lead? Why are they still hanging around? And it's kind of like the Baylor-North Carolina game would also be right there, where once the games went to overtime in both cases, everything, according to logic, would indicate, wait a second, Baylor's going to now win yeah, after they, coming back 25. 25 down, and then Kentucky's going to win. And in both cases, that just was not the yeah. case. The other team regrouped, they got focused, and they won fairly easily. So to me, those were the gold, silver, and bronze medalists okay. of the week in terms of top games. I just wanted to bring up TCU because I love Big Eddie, that story, losing all that weight and playing. Uh, and then, of course, Ken, I know you appreciated this. A first blood match broke out in overtime. I thought that was pretty good yeah. as well. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the incidental elbow after a made field goal where the guys just drained yeah. the blood right there <laughs> underneath great. the basket. You don't yeah. see that a lot in basketball, but when it happens, yeah. It's kind of a stark contrast to like what usually occurs, where it's usually like ah, there's a little elbow to the to the groin, and all of a sudden is that a flagrant too? But yeah, in order to just see blood just coming right out of the nose like that, yeah. is not something you see too often. Yeah, the crimson mask, it was great. Uh, those two games you brought up uh, as well, in addition to that, was uh, were f- some phenomenal drama. Uh, St. Peter's, the story of it with beating Kentucky and then following that up, beating Murray State, pulling away late in that one. We we see a 15 seed make this run. It's nearly unprecedented. It doesn't happen often. And this specific school, Kent, I mean, they were the story of the Darlings, obviously. it's They, they win that category going away, but... It's also one of the smallest schools, I think, to ever you know make a run like this. So this is really Cinderella. Like a lot of teams are kind of, I don't want to say posers, but they'll wear that. You know, when we don't have the true Cinderella, well, we have one this year. There's a lot of high schools across the country that have more enrollment than what St. Bigger gyms. does. And, and yeah. you know, it's a commuter school outside of New York City. And look, that conference, like the NAAC, they've had some nice teams over the years and. That was in the regular season. Uh, Rick Pitino's Iona team was number one and then lost in their conference tournament. But, yeah, in order to not only win one game but win two games, the only other 15 were done in this Florida Gulf Coast, and that was a little bit different where it felt like kind of a cool school that was on the uh, Gulf Coast. You're like, okay, I can kind of see that school making a run or something like that. But you don't that way at all when it comes to – a St. Peter's team that's, you know, for the most part getting, 
title level of recruit in New York in their landing, but let's take all the New York area biggie schools out of the way. Let's take the couple ACC schools in the region, so to speak, and then let's also most likely take some of the A-10 schools and things like that, and even the biggie school in Rutgers. You're not talking about like the 15th to 25th program in the New York area. That's the kids you're landing. Uh, it's a great job by Shaheen Holloway. I saw that just as of today, Kevin Willard is leaving Seton Hall to go to Maryland. So that oh. job is now open. I would say it's pretty much a definite that Shaheen Holloway will become the head coach at Seton Hall, and he's earned it. But look, they have a Purdue team coming up. The Purdue usually loses either this round or in the round of 32. <laughs> so all the pressure's on Purdue. My guess is the Boilermakers win, but good on St. Peter's to not only look good against Kentucky, but then in the second game, never have a beat where they're down in that game either. Yeah. So it was a really impressive weekend for them after Thursday night. It's one thing to say they win on Saturday, but it's another thing to say they win the way they did where they were just a better team for the second straight game. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I also just want to, again, applaud what St. Peter's did. Purdue was in a dogfight with Texas down in the second half, you know, had to rally. They see this as that golden opportunity, but they're not going to be playing a pushover, regardless of, obviously, what the spread says. When you clean out the state of Kentucky like St. Peter's did, you're oozing with confidence. Uh, and the last game you brought up in that, you know, trio of games, North Carolina-Baylor, I mean, do we just... I mean, refereeing was, was one thing. It was very good in a lot of ways. But do we just assume that Brady Mannix's like the most important player to any team left in March Madness? Because that was incredible. I mean, when he got ejected, how things changed. Yeah, I mean, his plus minus in that game was about as ridiculous as any player's <laughs> ever been in the tournament. And look, he's a nice player. He's a good, you know, stretch forward. Yeah. And he's capable of having some good games. But, like, this is not, like, you know, a first-team All-American that's you know, playing against a bunch of kids. Like, that shouldn't be that much of a difference. And Carolina was awful after he went out. They were, frankly, probably a little lucky even to get there yeah. over time. Uh, I don't know why teams in the tournament look like they, they never practice against pressure. Right, like, like never sort if of you're UCLA, do you, just press? do you just press if you're UCLA <laughs> right out of the get-go? Like, okay, let's see what we can do here. Because North Carolina, that was yeah, just Yeah, you wonder ridiculous. that. I mean, I do wonder a little bit. And, and, and this becomes more of a depth issue with your team. And that's one thing I always loved about Rick Pitino and kind of the way he structured his teams in college was he would play like 11 guys in some games, and it could be that just sort of mm. guy that's just a good defender who's going to give you four to six minutes where he's not going to do anything offensively, but he's just going to press the hell out of you, make it tough on you. And if you can do that, like, yes, I, if I had – if I was the UCLA head coach in Mick Cronin and I know I have a couple guards that can get out there who's not going to really play much on offense, but they can give me seven minutes each to just defend and full-court press, I would consider putting that together a little bit against Carolina because, man, it looks like if you can pull that off, you can get some easy transition points and turnovers and quick buckets your way. And on the other hand, if Tommy Hikes, if Hawkes doesn't play – for, for UCLA, he's kind of their glue guy, like their Swiss Army knife, where, you know, he's like a guard slash forward, but he kind of plays every, every position but center. If he's not playing, then UCLA is going to have to really step things up with their top players, you know, Tiger Campbell. Uh, obviously, you look at a guy like Johnny Juzang. Those guys are going to have to play out of their minds. But if you can bring some of that pressure, 
and have some bench players just play a few minutes, it's not the worst idea in the world. But you also have to be good at it. You can't all of a sudden institute this in three days and expect it to just be a game breaker. But North Carolina was not very good most of the season. They were a team that were kind of a fringe tournament team up until they beat Duke late in the year. So just on paper, I would like to think that UCLA can find a way to win that game. But if Hawk has his out or mm. 60% or 50%, that does change the way that that team plays in UCLA. Yeah, North Carolina, when they lose, it's almost like they lose going away. Like we saw it in the ACC tournament when Virginia Tech just waxed them pretty good. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, a quick one for you, though, Kent, before we dive into more of the teams that made runs. If you had to just think off the top of your head, which team would you say choked or just underachieved the most in, in one game? It could be a team that even won the first their first round game, but do you find a team that just didn't show up or very disappointing, if you had to pick one, who the most disappointing was? Well, I mean, let's just move Kentucky off of this because I think that's the obvious <laughs> yeah. answer. Although, surprisingly, I don't think Kentucky played like that, that's, their F game. I agree, so and that's they, why I, that's why I think it's just, different, yeah. Yeah, they were just kind of lost in motion a little bit. But I would say whenever you look at the bracket now, and I'm trying to think of teams, I mean, the one that comes to mind that sort of stands out is Wisconsin. And, and I understand that Chucky Hepburn got mm. hurt, and that changes the way they play. But Wisconsin is the type of team that they're going to have a lot of tight games. They're going to play close games throughout. But you saw against Colgate, they had the rally late to win. And then against Iowa State, they were seemingly down and out the entire game. So I would say on a, on a performance level, they're right in terms of a team that just uh, like fell off and, and I was a little bit surprised by. I think if you're a fan of Auburn, you've got to throw them in because Auburn this year was number one in the country for a bit. They were in the top ten all season. And they were a two seed. They had yeah. high expectations. And Miami just kicked their ass. Like Miami yeah. just beat them down pretty much the entire game. They got close late in the first half. And then it was over early in the second half. So I would say that I would go with Auburn, Wisconsin, those type, the, okay. those two teams as something that stands out. Maybe I'm missing something yeah. off the top of my head here. But those are two that stand out right now as teams that I think underperformed quite a bit. I have one addition to that. I just want to you know add to what you said. Obviously, you know Auburn and Kentucky seem like they got stuck in neutral when the the latter half of the season into the SEC tournament, and you know weren't playing their best when they needed it the most. Wisconsin in that last game against Iowa State, they shot something like two for 22 from three. So you can say that that's kind of sitting there for them. The only addition, and those are all good answers, Kent, a team that lost in the first round, I'll throw Iowa into that mix. I thought they just didn't have it against a beatable Richmond team. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, overall, though, I feel like that was a matchup that, I, don't, I mean, Iowa – I think Iowa over-succeeded the week before. Like, they were the five seed in the Big Ten tournament. They were a team that, you know, had quite a bit of losses on the season. So I, I wouldn't quite put them in that that position the way I would those other teams because Iowa was not a top five, top ten team throughout yeah. this whole season where, like, Auburn was, Kentucky was, Wisconsin was, you know, th- those types of teams. I get it if you're strictly looking off of, like, mm-hmm. quote-unquote the hot team that is coming into the tournament, Iowa would have been one of those teams. But I don't necessarily think yeah. what they did in Indianapolis for four days the week before had a lot of input on what I expected them to do in March Madness. I also, I also think uh, Sister Jean underachieved. You know, she just just didn't get it done, ran All out you had of to time. Do is bring her to the Steel City and yeah. things got taken care of. 
Ohio State's an interesting thing, and I know you follow them not as yeah. closely as you do the the, the football mm-hmm. program. But Ohio State this year, expectations wise, seemed to be kind of up and down all season. Where like they were capable in one game of beating anybody, but on another hand, they were capable yeah. of losing three in a row. Exactly. So I, just, I didn't know what to make of them. I thought that a seven seed and losing to Nova was about where they should have right. been. But overall, like had the, had Ohio State advanced. Who would say that they wouldn't win two more games and go to the Final Four? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that that game itself was kind of a microcosm of the season where they were kind of hyped up early. You know, they'd have stretches. I mean, they just didn't really show up early in that game. Those stretches in the first half were bad, but then they battle back in the second. You see glimpses of it. Uh, it just wasn't meant to be. Credit to Nova. Ken uh, Brown here on the Money Mitch Effect. Uh, and, and oddly enough, though, here's a little foreshadowing for you. I didn't even plan it this way. I've uh, been doing this show for a couple years now. This is episode number 305, and that's a good segue into what your Miami Hurricanes did. That's beautiful. You know, it was good, and you mentioned it when we discussed it uh, in the Auburn game. There was nothing fluky about that, and there's nothing fluky about what Jim Laranaga does uh, in the tournament. Now, this Miami team, uh, there's a lot of energy. There, there's a lot of streakiness in their offense, but when they're clicking on all cylinders, I mean, this is a, a top 10, top 5 looking offense, and you know what they did to Auburn, uh, a team that had such a great regular season, and how they beat them might have stood out more than any this weekend. Yeah, they are really tough to defend because they really do run like a positionless offense, five out. You have everybody can handle the ball, everybody can start the offense, everybody can attack the paint. You know, make tough contested layups, mid-range game. Like Miami's absolutely a team that does settle for those mid-range shots. That's so much of like what basketball has become is not playing in the mid-range. And, you know, in any one game, you could have, like, McGuffey's your leading scorer one game. The next game, he's your fourth leading scorer. Uh, the same goes with Isaiah Wong, who's been up and down the last couple weeks, but showed up huge in the opener the other day. But then, you know, against Auburn, he was just kind of, you know, not a role player, but also a guy that, like, you know, he didn't need to score 20 points either. So, yeah, I really like the way Miami's playing. I think the Iowa State matchup is interesting because you start looking more into Iowa State, which I did today, and this is an Iowa State team that they really don't score the ball very much. So this is going to be a game that if Miami, if Miami can turnovers <laughs> on defense, get transition points, I really think that that's how they separate in this game where, like, I don't see Miami scoring 70, but if they can get you 65 and maybe 13 or 14 points in transition, something like that, that would be the difference because it's just a little hard to believe that Iowa State's going to be able to play, you know, half court all game and score in the mid-60s. So I do like the matchup for Miami, but it's one of those games. It's going to be hard. There's going to be possessions where, you know, you're forcing shots late. But as Bill Rousery said on the broadcast, on Sunday, he goes, this is a team that isn't afraid of taking the shot clock down because every guy on the court can make plays late in the shot clock. And, and that is something to factor in, where some teams, it's like, oh, no, this guy has the ball and there's five seconds left on the shot clock. This isn't good. There's nobody on Miami, at least not their starting unit, that they feel like petrified with the ball in his hands with just, with just a few seconds left. But overall, I love what they've done. The average age of starting team is 23 years old because they brought in so many transfers and Charlie Moore on his yeah. fourth team now in six seasons. <laughs> so uh, it's a fun team, but yeah. let's be real. They're now the favorite in the Sweet 16, which means they're expected to win. 
And then if they do win that game, most likely, I mean, maybe Providence wins, but most likely it's a Kansas team that doesn't have like the star power that most Kansas teams have had the last 25 years. So I wouldn't say that I would feel great about Miami's chances of beating Kansas, but I would feel better about Kansas than I would if they played Arizona yeah. or Gonzaga. That's for sure. Crazy that Miami's in the Sweet 16 and they're not one of the three uh, lowest seeds remaining. You know, there's three teams with lower numbers next to their name in Miami. That's just the kind of run we've had this year. Um, and we're going to get to the preview of the games in just a second. I do want to kind of finish with the looking back on it and looking at that Duke uh, run and, you know, getting past Michigan State going on that run late in the game. And I would have to think, Kent, we've talked about it, that Coach K knows that this, you know, this is a great story. You know, he's going out and, you know, the video that played that said they only hang championship banners and they showed a banner of his that wasn't a championship. Uh, which is all fine and dandy, but I got to think that even he knows deep down that this isn't one of his best Duke teams. They're still fighting, but they, they've they've got some issues, and we might see Texas Tech expose them. Yeah, it's still a pretty good team, though, but defensively is where they're weak, hmm. and you start to look at their team. Because offensively, there's a lot of guys that are going to be first-round picks. There's a lot of guys, much like Miami, that it's the ball's in the hands of Keels or Griffin or Bonchero or obviously Williams near the near the uh, paint, you feel pretty good about things. I also don't know as of today what the status of A.J. Griffin is. You know, he's a really good outside shooter that if he's hurt, that really hurts Duke's offense long-term because he does stretch the floor. But for Texas Tech, that's like a different kind of team where they're an old-school team. You know, like they pride themselves on holding teams to 33% offense. Like, you know, you're going to get some points, but it's going to be hard and you're not going to want to fight on offense for every point. And defensively, you know, as I said, Texas Tech is so much better than Duke. So I, I think it's a tough matchup. We talked yesterday saying, like, I wonder what the spread will be once it comes out, and I kind of was hoping Duke would be the favorite. At least when the opening line came out, it was Texas Tech minus a point and a half. I still like Texas Tech in this game. I think that that's actually a smart line for Vegas because they know a lot of the public – is going to be heavy on Duke in that game. So just just giving Duke a point or point and a half to me shows that Vegas really expects Texas Tech to show up and win. Yeah, they're getting that Duke bump, and and that's still what the final number is. That's a good observation there. I think um, you know they have the talent, they have individual talent, so they're always going to be in any game or you know on paper they're going to have a puncher's chance regardless of how far this goes, but. Like we said, I mean, there's no dominant team, so it is just about surviving and advancing, and, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, Kent Brown, now we're going to look at some of these matchups and some of the games we like and maybe some of the games you might want to wager on. Uh, you sent me the odds and, and, and numbers, but uh, not blowing smoke, not trying to gas you up, but I do like maybe of all the games, I really do like Miami over Iowa State. Yeah, I hope so. Again, I mean, it's, it's, it's a low line. It's not anything major, but at the same point, like, it's a favorable matchup. I think that Miami is going to have a good shot. And if they play well, then I think they do cover and win by at least two or three points. So I'm with you on that. I would, I would lean towards Miami right now. The other one I'm starting to come around on and believe in is Houston against Arizona. Hmm. Houston is hmm. like a better version of TCU. Yeah. This is athletically, this might be the best matchup, you know? Like, if you're talking about a team that could run with Arizona and, as you say, do more of what TCU did, I think this could be, this might be the most fun game to watch of the week. Yeah, and the fact that it's the late game, too, 
for us is kind of odd because I mean, East Coast wise, uh, and it makes sense because I think you want to put the Michigan Nova with those two national brands on kind of prime time Eastern time. But Houston, Arizona to me is going to be the better matchup of those two and probably the best matchup of that night. So uh, Calvin Sampson's an underrated coach. The guy's always been good, you know, got in trouble back in the day at IU for doing some stuff with like cell phones and calling up recruits when he shouldn't, which now always looks so stupid. I mean, I understand that's the rules. You don't do it, but he was not some bad guy. He just violated some rules there and then also didn't, didn't dominate the way IU wanted. As we've seen over the years, Indiana basketball, a little bit tough to keep that job if you're not Bobby Knight, which nobody has been since Bobby Knight. So I look for Houston to probably pull that upset and beat Arizona. I'd really feel comfortable with Villanova over Michigan. I think similar to the Nova-Ohio State game, it's a similar mm-hmm. line. Yeah. Not that Michigan can't win, but I just look at Gillespie and Samuels and Jay Wright as the coach, and I look at that team, and they they led the nation in, in free throw percentage, actually broke the NCAA record for team free throws. Their assist to turnover is always at the top. Like They just don't make mistakes, and they're one of those teams, they recruit kids that fit what they're trying to do. And Jay Wright, just, I, you know, I've been saying this for at least a few weeks, and you know, me and a couple of our buddies have had a chat, like once Coach K retires, he's the best coach in the country. And to me, it's Jay Wright. And mm-hmm. uh, he seemingly maximizes his talent more than any other coach. And I don't look at Michigan as a team that maximizes its talent. They were an 11 seed for a reason, and something tells me they're not going to quite be capable of four more games of high-caliber basketball. And I would think Villanova wins that game and covers. I don't think they win by 20, but probably like a 10-point win type of deal yeah. that beats Michigan. So those are two on Thursday I like. As for the rest of them, I like Texas Tech. I've already told you. Yeah. Gonzaga, Arkansas is interesting because nine and a half points. Well, and, and don't you think that line, Kent, is reflective of the fact we didn't even really talk about Arkansas? And, you know, you get to the Sweet 16, you've earned it, I get it, but it's not been impressive, you know, compared to what other teams are doing. So I think that might be – I know Gonzaga is kind of the new the new hot girl in town uh, in terms of what they've done and how consistent they've been, but I think that line is more of a reflection of Arkansas, what they haven't done and some of the wins that they've had. Yeah, I think I think maybe a good tease candidate is probably where you're looking for Gonzaga. <laughs> yeah. I feel like overall, Gonzaga, on the other hand, Memphis was kind of step by step with them every every step of the way, though. So, and that's a little bit worrisome because this is not, in my opinion, a great Memphis team. Although they have talent, they recruit a bunch of five stars. Maybe they finally just put their crap together and showed up, but. Uh, out of the four games on Thursday, the one I would lean towards just not betting is probably Gonzaga, Arkansas. Maybe you wait, you watch it for a little bit, and then you find a live line that makes sense. But the other three I feel decent about with Houston, Texas Tech, and Villanova. Should be fun to see how this all shakes out. I think we've got some endless possibilities of Final Four teams. Could be some chalk, could be some double-digit teams. Uh, I'm excited to, to kind of see how it goes. Uh, Kent, thanks for chopping it up with me. I do want to leave you with this, though. Uh, has hell frozen over if we stick in the college game with the Vols getting a top-five quarterback? How about that? Yeah, Nico out here on Beach Poly, kid. Uh, potential eight mobile. Look, I mean, that's what some programs are going to do, and I think long-term we'll start to 
how things shape out with NIL and is it worth it to give this amount of money. It is a collective doing it. It's not the university that's paying him. But on the other hand, quarterback recruits are risky. You look at the five stars over the last 15 years, it's pretty much a coin flip on whether you'll be successful or whether you'll be a bust. So if you're Tennessee, I think it's worth the gamble. You want to be able to have an identity for your program. You want to be able to sell the other recruits clearly that, you know, we have the superstar quarterback to, to work with you guys. But on the other hand, he's still a high school junior, still has a year to go in high school, and then get to school. Most true freshman quarterbacks are not Trevor Lawrence. Most of them take a year at least to get ready. So now we're talking about a kid that potentially is probably not going to see meaningful reps for two-plus years. Uh, it's, it's an interesting deal. Look, I mean, if you can get that type of money and you can go play major college football at a place like Tennessee, I think it's a good idea to, to do that. But yeah. on the other hand, it is interesting because you look at Alabama and Georgia and Clemson and Ohio State and programs like that, and they're going to do NIL deal too. But the first one to really make that monster deal that stands out is the Tennessee Vols. And, hey, it might work out. Look, we might look back at it and say, that was the start of what turned Tennessee around. Or for all we know, he might be a transfer in two or three years. And people say, wow, that did not work out at all. It's hard to know. But, you know, like right now, you know, I know who the kid is as a recruit. I've never seen him in person. I would like to go see a game next year if I can. But on the other hand, it is very intriguing with NIL and everything else in high school and college right now is where do people find the money? I thought Andy Staples from The Athletic said it very well. He goes, I'm telling people right now, if you want to start investing big money in NIL, pay the linemen first. Go after mm-hmm. the O linemen who are five stars. Go after the D linemen. Forget about the skill guys. Forget about the quarterback. Those guys come and go. There's plenty of them. But if you look at the rivals want 100 or you look at the 247 ranking good call there's very few of those five star 300 pound guys and 270 pound edge rushers that don't end up being pretty good so i would say start paying the linemen if you want to start somewhere well that's that seems to be the georgia bulldog method that's paid out i mean in just building the roster uh and as far as maybe seeing a game i feel like it's a safe bet that our phones may blow up in the next year from one of our friends saying hey we got to go to a game just just throwing that out there. Yeah, <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny are, if... Odds one... <laughs> are that that invite is... I mean, between our one friend living walking distance to where Long Beach Valley yes. plays and our other buddy who's a, very much a frequent guest of this pod and Sean yeah. Sullivan... Odds are likely that we might end up doing some sort of Long Beach Poly tailgate on a Friday and, and see yeah. and see Nico, and see Nico in person. Just please don't get him a violation. It would be terrible. I mean, not for me personally, but if if, if, if somehow that's true, it doesn't really affect one of us. Yeah, exactly. Like I guess it would be funny for entertainment, but it would be bad for you, uh, Kent. This was fun. I, I do want to spend like the last last moment of this uh, since I have you here. Just talking about Scott Hall, uh, R.I.P. to one of the greats. I know, I know, we were, you know, both sad to see, unfortunately, the uh, the uh, effects of uh, the hip surgery into the heart attacks and whatnot. He had his demons, he had his issues, but one of my favorite wrestlers. I know he was one of yours, and uh, undoubtedly changed the game, changed the business for the better. So, R.I.P. to the bad guy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at it in terms of like one of my best memories as a fan was the first ever pay per view I got to attend as a kid. SummerSlam 95, and it's 
Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon in their second ladder match where they brought up dual ladders for the first time you saw that. And, you know, he always put on a show. He's one of those guys that just made everybody better. But also, you didn't realize it at the time how important he was, both in the WWE sphere, where, like, he built up the one, two, three kid. He made Shawn Michaels more of a star. His stuff with Diesel, his first match in Royal Rumble 93 with Brett is, you know, I just went back and did a watch along last night that Jim Cornette on his podcast watched it and broke it down. And it's a much better match than I think most of us really remember. And then his shift to WCW and the NWO did, as you said, it changed the game. It changed the way wrestling was. You don't talk about attitude era unless there's the NWO. And he was the start of it. You know, it came out there. Uh, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. And just also the Razor Ramon gimmick, looking back at it, in a lot of other hands, that's a very flawed, failed gimmick that I don't think a lot of wrestlers could pull off. And instead, he not only pulled it off, he made him a star very quickly. I mean, again, the guy was fighting in a title match less than a year into the company, and it was believable. You thought, this guy's the real deal. Uh, you know, some people say it's unfortunate he never won the world title at either company. Yeah, I guess that's true, but here's the thing. He's more memorable than a lot of other world champions over the last 25 years. So when you break down the history of wrestling, you know, like Dolph Ziggler was a world champion. Jack Swagger was a world champion. And like Piper Uh, wasn't. David Arquette was a world champion. None of them are Razor Ramon or Scott Hall. So, yeah, I think he's, uh, you know, he's a top 20 all-time guy, you know, Personally, probably closer to my top 10 if I'm just ranking like my favorite wrestlers ever. And uh, yeah, it's unfortunate what happened, but he was in his 60s, which I think is a little bit longer than a lot of us might have thought 10, 15 years ago. And seemingly he did turn his life around in that aspect. So, you know, the surgery and everything else that happened, that's extremely unfortunate. But I do think you look back at his career and probably the last decade of his life where he seemed to be living a much better life than he was living when he yeah. was towards the end of his career. So it's so a great on the bad guy, Scott Hall, Razor Ramon. He's one of the best of all time. And, you know, sadly, he's the real first guy to go in that DX top NWO click sort of status where, you know, you look at Kevin Nash and Hulk Hogan and one, two, three kid and Shawn Michaels and Triple H and the outlaws. And I mean, I guess China was the first, but in terms of just the men wrestlers, mm. he's the first of that group to go. And it's sad, you know, it really is. But uh, overall, nothing but good things to say as far as I'm concerned about his career and, you know, how he, as you said, he was a game changer in many ways. Yeah, and shout out to DDP for definitely helping to extend his life, you know, helping to make those changes. I don't think he lives to this age anywhere close to And a to great it. quote. I got to say the quote because I know it made you laugh. But, uh, you know, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the cruiserweights in WCW that put on a show and they were doing their flips and they were doing everything they could to get the crowd over and, Scott Hall, he knew the business, and they would get to the back, and he would go, hey, look, everything you did was great, but watch, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to get a bigger pop by putting a guy in a headlock. And yeah. he knew how to do that. He knew how to do the little things in a match, and he was able to really sell his ass off w- while working a much different mm-hmm. way than guys work today. Put guys over, no problems. Coined the phrase, I look, ba- I look good on my back, which was great. And uh, also, in rewatching Hulk Hogan's turn to join the NWO and the post-match shenanigans, delivered some of the all-time greatest kicks to the back of that fan who brushed the ring's head. I mean, those were just remarkable. Just <laughs> stiff kicks to the <laughs> back of that guy's neck. part of being an NWO <laughs> member. 
<laughs> just getting to weigh in some free some live rounds as they say uh but yeah r.i.p scott hall one of the best uh, of all time in uh, one of the things we love the most and uh yeah, I mean, he, they they could use a guy like him currently because WrestleMania is shaping up to be a weird card. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, it's next week at this point, and it's kind of a celebrity-driven WrestleMania with uh, a potential match with Stone Cold. We don't really know what's going to go on. And then, of course, the headliner being Brock and Reigns for the third time in a decade, which I think this is the best they've done with the build. But nonetheless, yeah, in terms of the show, there's a lot of – there's a lot of questions, and there's a lot of kind of too much celebrity-driven stuff, in my opinion. But uh, it'll probably be entertaining, but it certainly is not, on paper, one of their better cards they put together. Kent Brown, appreciate you coming on, uh, as always. Um, always a blast catching up with you. And uh, you know, actually, Kent, you might be a lefty. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that once or twice in my life. Kevin Brown, thanks for coming out. We'll have to do this again soon. Take care, Mitch. Have a good one, buddy. That's going to do it for today's show. Big thanks again to both guests, Eddie Murphy, Kent Brown, two good, good dudes for coming on and chatting about these respective sports topics. If you like the Money Mitch Effect show, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Just search Money Mitch Effect. It pops right up there. Leave a rating, review, subscribe, and check out the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page as well for some exclusive content there. I'm on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21. We will be back next week to talk whatever the sports world has to offer, but baseball back now, basketball, hockey playoffs ramping up, and more March Madness updates like you've never heard it before. I am Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, keep enjoying sports.